Welcome to Sunday Celebrations. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives, this is the podcast version of a radio show that airs on Easy Music 3MP every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. Each week we'll chat to people who have each played their part in shaping life in Melbourne. Business people, sportsmen and women, musicians, politicians and broadcasters. This week, our very special guest is Wilbur Wilde. Will he rise to fame, playing sax with All 55 and Jojo Zeppelin and Falcons? Amongst many other bands, he's played with Skyhooks, Elvis Costello, Tom Jones, the list goes on and on. TV appearances have been things like Flying Doctors, The Paul Hogan Show, right through to obviously the iconic Hey Hey It's Saturday, and even been on the big screen with, and I'm going to ask him about this in a sec, a 59-second scene on Mad Max. <laughs> Welcome to Sunday Celebrations, Mr. Wilbur Wilde. Well, thank you very much, Grant Johnstone. Tell me about um, the 59 seconds on Mad Max. I have heard this story, but I, I want you to tell it again. Well, it's actually not 59 seconds of me. It's about 59 seconds in, and there's a scene where one of the guys is spying on a young a couple of young lovers in the field. Yes. And um, having a, a, a Steve Millichamp is the actor who actually sadly died too soon. And in the cop car is a guy named John Lee, who was our mate. And that's why we got the extra role of being the two young lovers in a field. It's all tastefully shot. And uh, they sound the siren and we uh, scamper off like scared rabbits. And one of the blancmange-like bottoms disappearing into the distance belongs to moi. <laughs> That said, <laughs> last year they had the 40th anniversary of Mad Max up at the Maryborough Harness Club. Yeah. There were about 1,500 people up there. All came up. There were about 150 vehicles. The cast, Hugh Keys Byrne, um, John Lee was there, Paul Johnson, who played Kundalini, yep. um, Grant Page, who's now 80, was the stunt coordinator. But they were all there, and I was able to walk in and say, hey, I was only in the movie for seven seconds, but you would have been stuffed without me. Now, you realise I've now ticked a, a complete life box that I've been able to get someone to say the word blamange in an interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, and it was, they were really pleased to see me, and it was a, um, just a funny thing because um, off the back of that, uh, George Miller found out that I was in a rock and roll band. I was playing with the Falcons in those days, and Dr. Mm. George uh, was looking for music for the film and, you know, was in the embryonic stages of it. And he came along to see the Falcons one night at a legendary Melbourne venue directly opposite Luna Park called the Banana Lounge. Yes, I remember it. You're right, Bananas used to hold about 350 stacked to the rafters. There were 700 in there this night. And uh, Dr. George walked in in a white fedora, a white linen suit with his entourage and the crowd parted Red Sea like. <laughs> and uh, nothing further came of that. I think I had a go at writing a theme for it, sitting at the piano one morning and uh, Red Simons walked in and said, uh, what are you doing? I said, oh, this is movie. It's called Mad Max. You know, I'm just trying to write a theme. He said, what's the budget? And I said, oh, I don't know, 750, 800,000. He said, that's never going to do anything. Tom, let's go and have a coffee. <laughs> Man, the rest is history. Eh? Famous last words. <laughs> So, mate, let's let's rewind the clock a little bit and talk about growing up because I always sort of like these Sunday celebrations chats to have a little bit of where did it all begin stuff. Um, we lived in Lower Plenty, which is about 10, 12 miles out of the city, and I went to Lower Plenty State School. Mum mm -hmm. uh, was widowed in 1959. Dad died in a car crash on the uh, Forest Road, single vehicle, and I was three and a half. My big brother was 10 and a half and mum was seven months pregnant with our little sister, Andrea, who's now 61. I don't know how little sisters get to be 61, but that's it. <laughs> yes. And so at the end of state school, um, grade six, 1966, 
I got bronchitis and Dr. Jolly in Luck Street, Eltham, suggested I do some swimming, take my medicine and maybe play a wind instrument. So my grandparents bought me a clarinet, which I still have, the following year at Ivanhoe Grammar, to which I got a scholarship, otherwise we couldn't have afforded to go there. I started learning clarinet with my friend, and he's still with us at age 100 years of age. Oh, congratulations. That's Alec Doherty, my saxophone, my clarinet teacher. And then, um, yeah, and I was a surprise guest last year at his 99th birthday, and he played alto saxophone. Incredible. So, so you have bronchitis to thank for your career? Oh, yeah. Basically, uh, you know, I, I, if I could make the phone call to Dr. Jolly, I would think, you know, I'd say, look, let's start, this is where the trouble started. Mm. And the bands really began, what, late teens? Uh, yeah, it's probably sort of like mid to late teens. Form. Yep. Yeah, I had a, a band uh, called Beggars Farm. It wasn't my band. I joined a band called Beggars Farm with Mark Worrell, uh, Doug King on bass, and Michael Wilson on drums. And um, Doug King went on to be a senior police officer. Uh, Michael Wilson still operates the um, Preston Community Centre. Yeah. And um, Mark Worrell was hooked up with the uh, Marn Grook footy show as a music consultant. So they're still around those guys. And I'd love to get them when the time, when the easings happen. And because the, the, the Rosebud Hotel, one of the first gigs down that way, was that, is that right, <clears> that story? Okay, so after I dropped, I, I went to Monash University. I couldn't get into the conservatorium because they didn't take saxophone as a first instrument because I had my life completely planned out, Grant where um, I'd go to the con, I'd get a Bachelor of Music and a dip ed, like a muzzback and a dip ed, then I'd teach in a good school and I'd play gigs on Friday and Saturday. I was 17 years old and I had it shot to pieces. What happened was I went to Monash University um, just to do an arty arts course for about six months and then I realised I really wanted to play. I had a music unit at uh, mm. Monash, but it, it was sort of more analysis and so um, I uh, ended up playing in a hall review. They Somebody heard me practising in the room i was in halls of residence and they said hey we need a saxophone player why don't you do this and came over and it was so much fun and then i went back um dropped out of uni uh, approached ivanhoe grammar to ask if i could get saxophone lessons from their teacher who was a professional musician out of the navy band a guy named pete bowers who's still with us up in um uh, sunshine Coast. speak with pete yeah mate and he was the one with whom I started playing. He, he'd been asked by some guy to get another saxophone player, and that's the first sort of real gigs that I played were at the Rosebud Pub on a Saturday night, uh, halfway through 1973, and um, the public bar where we played was affectionately known as the Snake Pit. <laughs> and then we picked up a gig on the Friday night at the Pier Hotel, and um, directly, you know, sort of opposite where, not in the big room, you know, the, the big room at the pier went on to host, you know. Yeah, like I've was, was, been, I spent many a night there. Yeah. Well, this was just a, a sort of like a little room downstairs and we yeah. played there. And, um, I think they uh, called the Pelican, or well, back in the day, that was called the Pelican Bar. I don't know if it still is, uh, to be honest. But it might it, be. It, it was called the Pelican, Pelican Bar, the one downstairs, and then you had the big room yeah. upstairs. The old 55 stuff started in Sydney, though. How did that transition there? Did you move to the Gold Coast for a bit and then down to Sydney? Is that right? I did. Well, what happened was uh, at the end of 1973, I'd been playing in a nightclub in St Kilda and then that came to an end and Pete by then, Pete Bowers, had moved to the Gold Coast, back to the Gold Coast where his mum was living because he had a contract along with a, a half a dozen other Melbourne musicians and also some really swinging cats out of Sydney to play in a big band backing the likes of like Ricky May and Lovelace Watkins and even Dave Allen came out to play and perform at Lennon's Broad Beach Hotel, which was the biggest thing on the Gold Coast. So they had, you know, they moved to the coast. So I went up 
I just hitchhiked up. Mum dropped me off at the Ford factory on the Hume Highway on her way to work. I had a sleeping yeah. bag, a saxophone case, a couple of Charlie Parker records, and um, then I just headed to the Gold Coast. Literally the day I arrived, somebody called Pete to ask if he could do a gig, and he said, no, well, I can't because I'm working at um, Lennon's, but I've got a young bloke here who can do it. And they said, does he read? Yeah, he play good? Yeah, he plays all right. And uh, so off I went for the audition, well, for the gig, touring with Roy Orbison for 10 days. Wow. Which was great. Yeah, looking through the list of people you've worked with over the years, I mean, it's a pretty impressive list. And, and I remember hearing stories like, and I'm not dancing around too much with the timeline, but you know, even the, the Dire Straits story on, on stage with Mark Knopfler with Going Home. And you know, I've heard a few <laughs> of these stories. A lot of those, I won't call them cameos, but a lot of those plays where you actually just came in and played with someone for a specific time frame. That must give such a great sort of variety of memories because they, you know, they were just so diverse, weren't they? Look, there were people who came on Hey Hey at Saturday and they would ask sometimes uh, if I wouldn't mind a saxophone solo. Now, I I would generally just say, I oh, look, it's, you know, that's not what I do. And, uh, you know, I get one of the other players to do it if they needed it or if mm. they didn't, it's fine too. Uh, one guy who came on was Garth Brooks. I was a huge fan of Garth Brooks, still am. And he played a tune called One Night a Day, which has a lovely Tom Scott saxophone solo in it. And I was talking with Garth. I had my saxophone around my neck and he knew I was in the band. He said, do you you mind miming the solo? I said, no, man, it'd be my absolute pleasure. I'm a huge fan. And we, at the end of the tune, um, you know, it went well and, you know, at rehearsal. And he said, hey, you should come and play with us tomorrow night. I said, you haven't even heard me play. You've heard me mime. He said, no, you're going to be fine. So talking about cameos at... uh, a, a totally full Rod Laver arena. Garth Brooks has sort of said, now, ladies and gentlemen, we've been in town for a little while, but we made some great friends while we've been here when Melbourne has made us especially welcome. And here's one of those great friends we've made, Wilbur Wilde and Fanning. The audience went nuts. They threw <laughs> the cowboy hats in the air. They went so nuts that Garth Brooks had to step back to his micro- microphone and say, hey, uh, just remember, this is a Garth Brooks show, right? <laughs> Oh, play with him. Brilliant. Looking back at the old 55 stuff, and it dawned on me at the time that you and Frankie, even though the band has got so much history, weren't actually in it originally for that long. It's It was a really short period. Old 55 did their first gig in uh, 1975 on July the 4th. They advertised for a saxophone player on, triple, on, on what was Double J in those days. Yeah. Probably a week or so later. I showed up at uh, East Ride Leagues Club and saw Frank Holden for the first time and heard the harmonies, saw the flashy guitar players and liked the look. And I thought, this looks like fun. They'd only done a couple of gigs, but they had a deal with Mushroom Records because Glenn A. Baker, the then manager Mm. and conceptualiser of that 50s revival band, uh, named after the Tom Waits song, Old 55, had pestered Michael Gadinsky, his old mate, to give them a deal. So they'd already recorded Diana. I didn't play on Diana, yep. but I joined the band because it looked like fun. Nobody knew what was going to happen, but it just went nuts. Mm. Countdown and tours and Frank and I, as you say, were only there for 22 months. Yeah. Most people's recollection of old 55, to be honest, in my mind, is you and Frankie J. Holden. Well, that sort of was the original and, you know, that's the one that sort of had that rapid ascent to yeah. um, national fame. Look, we toured with Skyhooks in 1976. I was only uh, on the phone with uh, Red yesterday and uh, I, uh, Bob Starkey, Bongo Star, and I had a chat with Greg McCainch for the first time in a while, just on an unrelated matter. And look, Freddie Strokes, 
the drummer from the Skyhooks has been playing with me and Frank for 35 years. Yeah, there you go. So that's a long association. I was going to say that, you know, going on Countdown, and, and yet that's not why I joined bands. You know, mm. we just went out there and it just had, we had fun. And uh, Holden left the band in Canberra on a Sunday afternoon. And I thought, I'm going to quit too. It's not going to be nearly as much fun uh, without you. And I did. I just said, no, I'm not coming back either. And um, as I say, that was 22 months from when we joined. And about a week later, I started jo- I, I started with Jojo Zepp and the Falcons. Mm. And I recently in a, a related podcast to this, um, we did a history of Mushroom Records talking about Joe Camilleri. And I told a couple of stories about Joe and comments. Anyway, short story long. I thought that uh, Frank Holden and Joe Camilleri, the energy that they had on stage, their ability to command an audience, their leadership, they're just, I, I thought all front men were like that. Mm. They're not. <laughs> yeah, well, I was actually just about to say, because I spoke to Jeff Cox last week, and I got this real sense, and even after talking to him and then talking to you just for only you know, 15 or so minutes this morning so far, but I got a real sense that there was this core group of people, males and females, you know, I remember Wendy Stapleton and all these other yeah. people that you've all if you haven't stayed really close you still have very fond memories and it's a really tight-knit group of people that sort of 1970s early 80s australian band culture yeah you'd mentioned um bobby valentine in there. yeah yeah russell morris was playing at the roxy david briggs on guitar the former lrb of course briggsy playing with big night out with frank wendy and paulie paulie norton you know and um oh look the names go on freddie was playing then coxie was playing drums with you know so there was this this is great um as I say it's a, a a really, a really good crew and really fond memories. And, and you would uh, just Brian jump on stage and play with people, wouldn't you? I mean, if you if you were at a gig and they said, oh, come up and play something and you just, you know, you had your sax here or something, you would just jump on and play. And, and it was all about, as you said, having fun. You don't get that sense sort of now. So 89, 90, 91, probably a bit of 92, we were playing at the Roxy on Friday and Saturday nights. Yeah. I th- I, well, it was ridiculous. In 92, I, we'd opened the Rocky Horror Show I was doing um, on a Friday, I was do two Rocky Horror shows and then go and play the last set at the Roxy. Mm. Then the next day we'd go for Hey Hey It's Saturday rehearsal. Then we'd do Hey Hey It's Saturday. Then I'd go back and do the second show uh, of Rocky at the comedy, um, the nine o'clock show. I could just make, Red and I could just make that. Then I'd go onto the Roxy and play the last two sets uh, on Saturday nights. And Sheryl would come in from time to time and just walk up onto the stage and sing like a bird. He was so good, Shirley. And we'd do like Fats Domino's I'm Walking or, you know, let me tell you about a girl. Mm. You know, I mean, it, you know, you have 700 people in there just going nuts. Freddie on drums, Frank and Sheryl on vocals, Wendy as well would be there, uh, Donnie and Pete. Pete Waddell and Donnie Bales. As a person at <coughs> the other end of the stage back in those days, because, you know, I was, the, I was the punter, if you like. Yeah. It was just so wonderful to be able to go from venue to venue, pub to pub, week in, week out, and see live bands and to see groups of people. And I remember driving all the way, to about Wendy Stapleton, I remember driving all the way to Warrnambool uh, <laughs> uh, from Frankston one night to see uh, Wendy and the Rockets at the Lady Bay Hotel in Warrnambool, you know, because I just, I was, oh, oh, you know, I had probably had a bit of a crush, probably wouldn't admit it to her now, but, uh, you know, I had a bit of a crush in the day. And, you know, we just did this stuff because it was just such a wonderful culture at the time, the band culture. Well, look, 
the night before Eric McCusker's wedding, I drove up to Shepparton to hear Mondo Rock. I just wanted to hear Cool World. I wanted to hear Come Said the Boy. I just drove up for the gig, man. I wasn't even playing with them, you know. So I'm with you. I know just how important the music is. And what a part it's played in, in, in our lives. It's, you know, you mentioned up front, you know, they've shaped Melbourne. Look, these, these people, you know, my associates and uh, my heroes like Glenn Shorick and Ross Wilson and Russell Morris and, you know, John Paul Young and Joe Camilleri. I get to call them mates these days, but they were inspirations to me. And they've shaped, Brian Cadd, you know, they've shaped the culture of this country and they continue to do it. Braithwaite, I mean, he's still singing the donkey song, but, you know, he was, you know, we, <laughs> Hey, here's a new single out. Here's a new romantic ballad out. Oh, has he? Oh, yeah. sorry, I haven't heard, yeah. haven't heard that one yet. Yeah, no, he's got the talking song. But t- <laughs> talking about iconic stuff, though. But, no, we did gigs with Sherbet at uh, Festival Hall with Old 55 and it was just incredible. You know, Tony Mitchell and Alan Sandow and our, our countdown uh, concerts we did in um, uh, 2006 mm. were just, you know, they well, you know, that just went berserk. And it was just a fantastic thing to uh, to walk out on stage. And I'd sneak out and listen to those, to those guys too, mm. you know, to James Rain. You know, he opened the second half of the show. Hush! You know, Keith Lamb just... Yeah, smashed, great stuff. You know? And uh, then uh, uh, Sherbet would do this great medley and uh, Harvey was still there and, you know, Half Alive Clive. And, um, you know, this is it's just seminal and uh, uh, culture shaping musical memory is deeply deeply embedded now i've um my mate peter brogger coglin for instance played bass on uh solid rock and no, razor's edge and also played like he played with goanna hmm. and he played with uh, played bass on uh, only 19 john schumann right yep. so he went into aged care about uh, 17 years ago and for the last 15 years we've been doing gigs together we just go over and do like a little hour-long concert um for the clients for the residents of a few um facilities around melbourne mm-hmm. now you know can't do that at the moment but it's been really rewarding for me uh in that um you know more often than not i'll stick around for a cup of tea and a lemon slice and uh, have a chat with some of the residents there and to hear their cross-generational stories and yeah. their memories and how they grew up and what their fathers did and what their mothers did is uh fascinating to me but you realise with even with the dementia patients, as uh, Pete has explained to me, he'll find out. You know, they'll they'll be uh, and sadly they'll be incommunicative with their families and the carers, and they, uh, but yet they'll respond to their favourite music. Mm, yeah, and it might be back in the day. It might have been a bit of Glenn Miller. It might have been a bit of Frank Sinatra. Yeah, you know. And Pete does the research. He goes the extra mile and does the research to find out from their spouse or their family what you know. What do they used to listen to? You know, uh, one of our very good friends at the moment. My girlfriend's looking after a guy who loves the Seekers. He's ninety years old. Yeah, and he loves the Seekers. And in fact, we met at a Seekers concert. As in you and your girlfriend. Met. My girlfriend. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We. I went to. How about that? You can't have. You know. I turned 65 on the 5th of October and um, I went to a matinee of a Seekers concert because I couldn't make the night show. Yeah. Uh, good mate of ours, uh, Michael Cristiano, left a ticket on the door. He's their musical director and gets to stand out the front with Bruce Keith and Athel now. So I go to a Seekers matinee concert at the Recital Hall and I scored a girlfriend. How about yeah. that? That's a senior's Bonus. experience, isn't it? Yeah, that is a senior's experience. <laughs> So let, let's talk. Let's talk about television a little bit now, and how that all became a thing for you. And and sure. hey, hey, it's Saturday was a big part of it. But I was looking through the list of other shows that you you know made 
appearances on. It's a pretty big bloody list, to be honest. Where did the TV thing really start? How did you get into that? Look, when the bands released a single, like Old 55 had On the Prowl, we would go to Donny Sutherland's Sounds Unlimited on a Saturday morning and we'd mime to a backing track and Frank might sing live. Same with Hey Hey at Saturday. Same with Countdown. Same with Night Moves. Same with, you know, you, you know, fill in the gaps there. There was opportunity to promote local music. Molly Meldrum was just fantastic. Donnie Sutherland was just mm. fantastic. Daryl would put on two or three bands on a cartoon show on Saturday morning. And, you know, sometimes we'd just come straight from Bombay Rock and we weren't <laughs> in the best of shape. But <laughs> Phil Lambert came in and uh, was looking for volunteers for a panel, like a music panel or something mm. like that, the latest singles off the record or whatever it was called. And I said, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll have a go at that. You know, it's like showbiz is, um, well, my life is uh, somebody comes up and says, can you act? You say, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, can you play guitar? Yeah, how many? Can you sing? Yeah, <laughs> of course. Can, can you do radio? Yeah. yeah. Just get the gig, worry about the details later. And that's really the connection to Hey Hey. That's where it started. And in 1982 and 83, I think, Daryl had... Uh, the Daryl Summers Tonight Show, on which we used to make um, infrequent uh, appearances, like with a super band or Shane Bourne and I would do, you know, we'd play acting roles on it. And um, uh, Frank Holden was by then the talent coordinator. Uh, so, you know, it was just connection, just sort of connections. I'm, I'm mm. not a networker per se, but, you know, people say, oh, can you do this? You know, Mad Max? Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, see you down there, and whatever. If we, and if we do have any younger people listening, a really good life lesson, isn't it? without getting too philosophical. But mm-hmm. that whole philosophy, and I use it too, of say yes, figure out how, you do, how you'll do it later. And <laughs> Hasn't that, always worked that well. <laughs> no, but, but it, look, sometimes it goes pear-shaped, but, but <laughs> most of the time, but it's about seizing opportunity, isn't it? If you don't grab opportunity when it's staring you in the face, you end up missing out on a whole heap of opportunity. And, you know, what you're describing is a lot of what you've had over the years has come about because you've actually been willing to have a crack at stuff, easy to deal with, so then people gravitate to that, don't they? If, you, if you're someone that someone can come to and say, oh, look, I need you to do this. Is that cool? And you go, yeah, yeah, absolutely, mate. No worries. They'll come back. They'll keep gravitating to you. Okay. Here's the thing, right? Cherry and I went shopping. We needed um, some stuff at her local supermarket. And she said, uh, I'll just get some cat food. I said, yeah, okay, right. I'll wait here. She said, no, you have to come in because this is a surprise. I said, oh, right, right, okay. So we get the cat food. And as we're checking out, we go to a particular checkout uh, woman, Michelle, mm. who's thrilled to meet me. And I sort of, sort of, I bat that away fairly quickly and just say, oh, no, no, no big deal, Michelle, lo- lovely. And, you know, she said, oh, look, I've been waiting for ages. I've got a gift for you. So she pulls out a CD and it's the suite. Yes. Live in Australia. And I said, where'd you get this? And she said, I got it from the fan club in London. <laughs> and they've posted it to me. She said, I'm a huge fan of the suite. And I said, well, how come you, she said, I want you to have this. I said, how come you want me to have this? And she said, well, have a look uh, at the track list. And it's got eight tracks recorded at the Doncaster Shopping Town Hotel and another four tracks recorded at the Yarraville Club. Yeah. And you get down to Peppermint Twist uh, <laughs> featuring Wilbur Wilde. There you go. Do you remember right. doing it? Of course I do. She, she, said, she asked the same question. I said, yeah, in 2004, I was on Gold 104. Andy Scott came in for a lovely interview. We tickled up the gig. And, and he, I said, where are you tonight? And he said, Don, Don, Donny Shopping Town. I said, that's lurching distance from my dump. He said, bring your horn. So <laughs> I'm now on 
now on a on a sweet CD. Oh. And by the way, Cherry called this morning to say that she'd spoken with Michelle and she'd got from the fan club. She's she's got a signed copy herself with Andy Scott's signature on it, oh. and she's over the moon. She's such a big fan. But look. You know, it was just something to do on a Friday night or whenever it was. Yeah, was she yeah. Johnny Shopping Town. I'm on Planet Ivanhoe. It's 10 minutes away. Yeah. I'll go to, and I, I, I went up there to hear the band. So the Hey Hey stuff, I want to just spend a couple of minutes talking about that because it was a pretty big part of a lot of our lives, no doubt a huge part of yours, but a lot of our sure. lives. It was, a, it was a staple every single, particularly when it moved to the nighttime thing on Saturday nights. It was a staple every single Saturday night, and it was just such an iconic piece of Australian culture, isn't it? 1984 was when we went nighttime, and I can tell you, about 10 days before we went to air, I got a phone call. I was on my way out to play golf, actually, and I was a bit annoyed I had to go back in and answer the phone. You know, no mobiles in those days. And I left my clubs at the door, and it was uh, Gavin Disney, uh, Daryl's then business partner and yep. executive producer of the show, and he said, Daryl wants a meeting with you. I said, oh, okay, right, it's 10 o'clock now. I'm doing the calculations in my head. 10 o'clock now, first tea, 11. <laughs> 4 o'clock, you have beer with the boys. Said, How about 5 o'clock? He said, how about lunchtime? And I went, oh, right. you know, no golf. So I rocked in there, and uh, there was Daryl and Gavin and Ernie. Yeah. And they said, we want you to put a band together for Hey, Hey, We're Going Nighttime. And it was a big gamble for those guys. They were very successful in the morning. Yeah. And I heard later that um, Gavin had gone up to Sydney to meet with Kerry Packer of whom he was petrified. And uh, Kerry kept him waiting outside the, the office door and then uh, for an hour and then invited him in and basically said, yeah, well, you can give it. We'll... <laughs> and Dar- Gavin said, we'd like to take Hey, Hey, Nighttime, Primetime. And, and Kerry said, apparently he said, well, we'll give it six weeks. And otherwise, you... <laughs> if it doesn't work, you... <laughs> <laughs> so it worked. It and worked. Did it, did it work? It was great. 1984 brings back very fond memories for me, like romantic memories in the yeah. sense that we only had maybe two audience shows that year. They were dress-up shows. We were 9.30 till midnight and it was just us. Mm. No audience. Uh, Phil Lambert on the uh, floor, maybe Archie Soderman, a couple of cameramen, Dusty and uh, Adam Beams maybe, uh, and uh, producer Robin Jolly in those days mm. from Marshall's Portable Music Machine. He was the talent producer. And um, Jackie, Daryl, Ernie, me, Animal, bass player from the sports, Rob Glover. That was it. Yeah. And Blackman, Johnny Blackers was upstairs, of course, and uh, Murray on sound effects. And so it was a really intimate little group, a couple of pools of light. We had bands and stuff, you know, they'd yeah. come in and it was exciting. And uh, it evolved into the, the juggernaut that became the flagship of the Nine Network. Oh, hey, look, it, was. And, it was. It was just part of, well, it's part of Australian culture. It became... Yeah. You know, people would change their plans. I think, you know, a testament to it is you would you would change your dinner plans and change your evening plans sometimes on a Saturday because you wanted to wait until Hey Hey finished. Well, Red joined in 1986, by which time the show was going berserk. But can, just, to, just on that point, the reason I joined that show was, I mean, it was a huge gamble for them. And, you know, um, they didn't know what's going, what was going to happen. Nobody, nobody knows what's going to happen. Yeah. I joined because it looked like fun. fun. Yeah, there you go. Not because I thought that it would be just this ridiculous 17-year, um, you know, there's not a, a plate, not a street in the country down which I uh, can walk without being recognised by yeah. 
fans of that generation. And that's great. It's a lovely way to live your life. And people come up and they say, they say Gee, it was such a big influence on our lives and we mm. love you guys. And you don't know me and you must get sick of this. I say, excuse me, what's your name? Okay, John, now we know each other. And now I never get sick of it. I think it's so sweet that, that we played a part in your life and we had fun doing it. Oh, that is a really refreshing attitude. I want you to imagine a time when we're outside of virus because, of course, we've got all this palaver going on at the moment where we're just locked down and what have you. Once virus gets out of the way, where are you? You're still playing, obviously. You've still got bands playing. You're still doing shows. You're still doing gigs. What does the next sort of 12 to 18 to two years hold? Um, look, my overarching emotion for these times is curiosity. I have my moments where I've been anxious, but moments pass and you stop being anxious. I've been uh, pivoting toward, say, uh, well, I've got a few sticks in the fire. I would love to be companioning people, music therapy, uh, story listening, storytelling. I think mental health by and large is going to be a huge issue and mental health in aged care is going to be a hugest issue. So with a few connections that I've made along the way and also experience I've gained from working, as I mentioned, with uh, uh, Peter Brogger Coglin in aged care facilities, I find it so rewarding to be able to play a couple of tunes, talk with somebody about their life, and even if the family and that person are in agreement, to document it, to either record audio and or video of that, to drive them for a day trip back to their office, back to where they went to school, back to their first house, back to where they courted their girlfriend or their wife, and to hear the stories from those people. I think that there's a real opportunity there for that. And it's, um, I, you know, I, I really genuinely enjoy and get great reward from that sort of experience. That is an amazing thing you want to do, and I just can't. It makes me. I mean, I, I can't because I, I play guitar really, really badly. Um, so do I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's just something. The way you describe it, it's something you just want to be a part of. It's just the thought of actually providing people with a memory, and that's what you're doing. You're providing them with not only the person in the aged care facility that is getting such joy out of remembering those times, but the, but the ongoing family that in years to come can remember and can listen back and understand a little bit about the, the life of the person. That's just such a wonderful thing. For the family, and you and I have discussed the you know passing the torch along yeah. because the history of radio, the history of television is something with which we are or something of which we are enamoured. And that's part of a function of later life is paying respect to those from whence we came. And, you know, I, I think that those memories there, especially the musical memories, this is where I, you're, you're lobbing to my forehand when you're starting to talk about <laughs> Melbourne music. Last year for my birthday on October the 5th, I chose to co-host or be special guest on a rock and roll bus tour, 20-seater bus run by Mary Michalakos out mm -hmm. of the Art Centre. I sat up the front of the bus. The tour guide is a chap named Bruce Milne, who ran the tote, knows a, a lot about Melbourne music, and he told me stuff and the, the you know, the, the tourists uh, that I didn't know, and I told him stuff. Uh, just filled in a few gaps that he didn't know about. It was just the most 
funnest thing to do. And these people were fascinated. We went around to old studios. We went around to old gigs. We ended up at the corner hotel where the statue of Molly is. And there's just story after story after story, as you know, even at the Pier Hotel. Yeah. I mean, we didn't quite get that far, but we went past the Palais. We went past what used to be Bananas and the venue. And I mean, there's, you know, JJ uh, Hackett and Mondo Rock filmed a film clip on a building right next door to that. And I was able to say, oh, yeah, I was up on the roof the day they did the clip for this with Eric McCusker and Paul Christie and JJ Hackett and James Black. They JJ and James had an apartment. It's just the stuff that you remember. And I'm cursed with a good memory. And I love I loved listening to other people's stories and also just, you know, I've got a few of mine. Wilbur Wilde, thank you so much for your time. You talk about doing things because they're fun. This has been brilliant. So thank you for your time. And I hope you get out of lockdown so you can start to do some of that wonderful stuff in in aged care and and providing memories for people. So thank you for your time. Grant Johnson, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, g'day to all the 3MP listeners, especially Ernie and Miss. 